I put a plan in place five years ago that I would have a house by the time I was 34 years old. Danielle and I purchased our first house in May of 2017. I was 33 years old. Our house is worth about $220,000. We owe $192,000 on it. Rather than saving up from discretionary income, I borrowed some of my money from my 401k plan, of which I pay interest back to myself. We put about $8,000 as a down payment. With my half-rate education in business, which currently provides me no real use and doesn't provide any use to the world, other than to make me wealthy at the expense of the population, I have accumulated enough debt to purchase another home. I could have still accomplished all I have at the bank without any education at all. Because of my debt, I had to use my discretionary income to pay down other debt to meet a debt-to-income requirement to our lender who lend us the money to the house, or for the house. All of these situations came to pass due to a mixture of my narcissism, my arrogance, my borderline personality disorder, and poor management due to greed and a lack of education. That is, the lack of education in my money management skills. All of which I blame for myself. But theoretically, it's the community's fault, it's the government's fault, and it's the capitalist's fault. In my arrogant youth, I would have said that anyone has the capability to purchase a home. As I become more educated, which leads to less understanding, but hopefully leads to further inquiry, which it did for me, I don't believe that everybody has the capability to purchase a home. I don't think that everybody's the same, and uh, not everybody's able to do the same, same thing. I blame the whole thing on education and lack of community. This is The Age of Jeremy, episode 7.5, Good to the Last Drop, part two, The Home Dilemma. When I got my home, I cried. That's a true story. Uh, I grew up in a little townhouse on the outskirts of Maryville. My mom still lives there. She owns it, but refinanced it so many times she's been paying on it for over 30 years. When I was 16, my mom kicked me out of the house because I was a fuck up. I moved back in with my mom and after a series of bad choices, I went back to school at 24 years old. My grandfather once told me he didn't think that I would amount to much, but he's proud of me now. I personally don't think I've really done much. Think of what a bank does. It borrows money from you, the people, and gives you about five basis points. That's banker garbage for 0.05%. Then lends you money when you need it at an average of 12,000 basis points on lines and loans and 22,000 basis points on credit cards. That is 12% and 22% respectively. Now, I don't want to lead people astray. The bank does make money other places like through overdrafts, yearly fees for people that have lines of credits that don't use it, don't use them, helping people invest their money in stocks, bonds, and other instruments. But I think you, me, and the other American people should be pretty pissed off on that spread that they're getting to use our money. 
Of course, if you don't keep a lot of money in your account, the bank doesn't have access to it for a long time, but that's okay. The people that have a lot of money at the bank get better deals on the money that they have at the bank. In fact, if they have a lot of money with the bank, they can even buy new company stocks before the rest of the public can at a lower rate. So don't worry, the people that have a lot of money at the bank are being taken care of. In truth, they're getting screwed too, but not as bad as you. Nonetheless, I cried when I bought my house. I never thought that I would be able to purchase a house in my life, and apparently other people didn't think so either, such as my grandfather. But nonetheless, I changed all of that. People are proud of me. That's great. One of the tellers at the time that I was per- uh, that worked with me at the time that I was purchasing my house, uh, who makes about $12 an hour, she asked me if I was happy. I said, yes. I hoped everyone had the opportunity to own their house. Would she be able to buy a home, though, on $12 an hour? And does the government or the corporation have the obligation to house its people? Can you buy a house on minimum wage? This episode of Age of Radio is brought to you by the new Age of Radio podcast, Bones on Sports. This is Jimmy SS Bones, where the extra S stands for extra sports. I'm the host of the Bones on Sports podcast. It's a podcast where we talk about hockey, we talk about football, we talk about baseball, we talk about anything happening in the sports world that I feel is relevant. I'll be releasing a podcast every two weeks. You can pick that podcast up on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. So please join me on Bones on Sports. I think Ayn Rand did have something right in regards to philosophy. Philosophy is the search for wisdom. And she believed that a philosophical degree or a degree in philosophy um, was the highest education that one could have. She did link that idea to one of her characters, uh, Ragnar. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but it's like Danis Jold. Uh, He was a a reverse Robin Hood character who uh, stole from the poor to give to the rich. He appeared in the novel Atlas Shrugged. And uh, I'm glad Mr. Ryan thinks so highly of this book. That's a joke. On a side note, you should have read uh, read the book um, or you should read the book. You should read everything. Um, read words that you don't agree with and ones that you do agree with. Form your own opinions about those those concepts and then talk to others about it. And that's how you learn. Alice Shrugged is a good book to read and has an interesting story. I don't agree with what Ayn Rand was trying to do, but based on her her history and her upbringing, it makes some sense on why and how she created the opinions that she had about greed and selfishness. But let's get back to the houses. The right to property. Okay, let's face it. Philosophers are confusing with their big words and their ethical debates. Who knows what they're talking about? And none are more confusing than a British guy by the name of John Locke. His speciality was politics. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I know. That sounds confusing and boring. But like most things that are confusing and boring, what he had to say was actually very important. His theory of politics had three parts. Natural rights, consent of the people, and a moral obligation to rebel. You heard me right. Moral obligation to rebel. Excited yet? So the first part centers around the idea that when God created man, 
He endowed each of us with certain rights. Among these rights are life, liberty, and property, and they're very important. They're known as natural rights, rights that were naturally given. As long as you exist, you get these rights. They should never be denied to anybody. They should never be taken away by anybody. They're for keepsies. The right to life is the right to live, and live whatever life you want as long as it doesn't infringe on the right to life of others. That means you can dye your hair pink and listen to rock music all day. You can have a cat or two or whatever and anything in between. Just as long as you don't take any life away from anybody else. Sorry, Jason Voorhees. The right to liberty means no one has the right to imprison you against your will. Unless you're sent to jail for being naughty. That means the world is your playground. You can explore nature and Europe and wherever you want. But if you break the law, your right to freedom is taken away, and you go to jail. Pretty fair. Now, the right to property seems a little out of place in this list, but really, the right to property is a combination of the right to life and liberty. What? Okay, I'll break it down. Bear with me. In this state of nature, men are free to do as they please, so long as they preserve peace and preserve mankind in general. Because they have the right to self-preservation, it follows that they have the right to those things that will help them to survive and be happy. God has provided us with all these materials we need to pursue those things, but these natural resources are useless unless men applies their efforts to them. We own our bodies, therefore anything we acquire as a result of physical labor of our bodies becomes our property. So what does that look like? If I need shelter to live and I work to cut down a bunch of trees, the house I built is mine. If I need corn to live and I plow soil and plant seeds, the corn that grows will be mine. If I need protein to live and I raise chickens and I love them every day, the eggs they produce will be mine. Our work is an extension of ourselves and therefore just as important as our rights to life and liberty. Now because everyone has the same rights, John Locke believed that made everyone equal. That meant no man had a higher status, was more valuable, or had more rights than anybody else. I'm pretty sure everybody loved that idea. So where does government fit into all this? Well, according to John Locke, government power is the natural power of each man collectively giving up into the hands of a designated body forming a compact or agreement. Wait, what? I thought we could never and should never give up our natural rights, ever. You're right. But there is one time it's acceptable to relinquish a few rights. Our rights are really important, but we're just one person. There are a lot of bad guys out there that don't always follow moral laws of nature and might try to take away our rights. We need a hero to protect those rights. A government hero. Government forms when a bunch of people give a smaller group of people, whom they elect, access to their rights. And then a government is born. Aww. The citizens enter a compact with the government. Citizens give the government some of their rights. In exchange, the government protects their rights when they're under attack and act in ways that best serve the people. The government exists because the people allow it to. But what happens when the government becomes evil? <laughs> what if a government tries to take away one of our natural rights? What if it denies us the right to life? What if it doesn't allow us to be free and explore and find new ways to be happy? No! What if, what if they take away our right to property? To worry, 
John Locke believes that the community has a moral obligation to revolt against or otherwise replace any government that forgets that it exists only for the people's benefit. That means, out with the old, in with the new, start from scratch with a better government. Why would he say something that extreme, that we should get rid of an entire government? Natural rights are that important, according to John Locke, and maybe some colonists. I suppose, philosophically speaking, God gave every one of us the right to life. He gave us the right to liberty, and he gave us the right to property. We won't talk about the life and liberty part, but let's talk a little bit about the property. God gave us the right to property. It's the government's responsibility to provide me that right. In America, we call this the right to happiness, but it comes from the right to property. What if my happiness, though, lies in taking lives? Then the government takes that away from me, which was my natural right to pursue happiness, but then kills me because I took other lives. And this just goes on and on. So technically, property uh, makes more sense, but let's move on. My right to property um, is to get me a home. Now, the good news is I have access to a chainsaw and I live pretty close to Flagstaff. It's like a two hour drive. So I'm going to go cut some trees and make me a house. The problem with that is that I can't cut down trees that I don't own and I can't build my house without permits. So did the government strip me of my natural right to property? Since I can't go cut down trees and make my own home without money to trade for the land or some other commodity to trade, then I would have to get a job. The money excluding any debt that I pay, but including living expenses, should be enough money for me to purchase a house. That is the right that each of us have. No matter what race, sex, education, skill set, you have a right to use your own labor to acquire property. That contract, I believe, has been violated by the government. That being said, they have an obligation to you, the people, to make it possible for you to, one, acquire a home through physical labor alone, which we can't really do, two, raise the minimum wage to an amount that without any debt expense uh, and uh, including average expenses, a person should be able to purchase a house, or three, intervene with the housing market to drive the prices of the houses down, which might hurt the economy. Of course, there are probably concepts I may have overlooked, and I may be interpreting this all wrong. Who the fuck knows? However, it's my thinking that leads me to believe that the government, the community, or the corporation, being that it is an entity, has an obligation to help get every person into a home that they own. Now, do I think we should go storm the streets and take back our government? Maybe if it comes to that. However, we do live in a somewhat uh, free market society. I mean, people believe in free markets, even though they're not free Anyway, we make things like corporations separate entities from individuals. I believe that each of us can uh, make a change to everything that's going on. One of the biggest hurdles I have in explaining to people the concept of October Revolution Corporation is that they believe businesses such as LLCs, LLPs, LPs, partnerships, S-Corps, C-Corps have to be run a certain way. Well, there are some legal requirements, but technically the board of directors can decide how to run the company. We can pretty much run it however we want. If the corporation is an entity, which it is, and it's similar to a government, uh, think about it this way. If it can take on its own debt, apart from the people that work or live in it, it is an entity. Wouldn't it be great if that entity that you work for, you know, your job, the, your 
place of business that you go to work every day for most of your life, if you had ownership in it, what if you had ownership in it and you could make sure that every person in your corporation had a home, a home that they owned? Isn't that possible? Why not? You are giving your labor to a corporation. You are giving of it most of your life and your liberties are hindered while you're working there. And they give you in exchange for your labor, a paycheck, a benefits package, but you don't get to decide what happens with the fruit of your labor. Doesn't it owe you more? Isn't it similar to a government? The structure works similar. It's hierarchical. Isn't it possible that the corporation owes you some of your natural rights, especially if it's taking so many away? Shouldn't we have the right to throw over a corporation? We can throw over our government. We would need a strong military relationship, but it could be done with time and energy. Isn't that really why we have our Second Amendment? The right for bears to have arms? We could throw over the corporations. We could overthrow the government. Or we could just fucking evolve. We can come up with new ways for corporations to work that are completely owned and operated by the workers. The Corporation Cooperative. Or the Cooperative Corporation. Either one sounds cool. This next clip comes from a talk at Google. You can find it if you go to youtube.com and type in Richard Wolf talk at Google if you want to listen to the whole thing. This is an excerpt from it that talks about cooperatives. So you live in an economic system that is now run by people who have no idea about everything I just told you. It's painful. I've had to teach all my life the conventional, neoclassical, Keynesian, but I've also taught this other. I know what my colleagues do, but they don't understand what I do. And I'm not the only one, I'm not suggesting that, but I'm a critic of the system because it makes sense to me that a system that works in the way I've described deserves some criticism. And I even dare to suggest that intelligent folks like you could thrive on hearing the criticism and thinking about it. Accept all of it? Of course not. But think about it? Engage it? Come on. If you wanted to understand the family up the road that had two parents and two kids, would you decide to interview one of the two children, not two? Especially if you knew that one of the children thought it was the best family in the world. The other children, other child thought this was a basket case of psychological dysfunction. Probably most of you would understand you got to talk to both of the children and then you make up your own mind. Hear what they have to say. Hear the people who think capitalism is the best thing since sliced bread, but maybe also take a dare. Listen to the people who think it's critical, who think it's a system that never could do what it had promised. And finally, and I'm going to conclude with this, a system that is in no way necessary. What are we, what are we accepting? It's not inevitable. It never was. Oh, true, the people who like capitalism love to say it's the end of history, it's the final stage. But the people who articulated slavery said that. And the people who articulated feudalism said that. So, of course, the people who run capitalism say that. But the burden's on them. 
Every system we know of in human history has been born, evolved over time, and died. We know capitalism was born, and we know it's evolved. You know what the next stage is? Well, I won't go into that. You can figure that out. What would be an alternative? Well, in a way, everything I've said gives you the answer. If we have a system that's unstable, if we have a system that produces unspeakable inequality, a system that makes it profitable to fire large numbers of people, even if the social costs of their unemployment exceed the profits that the automation achieved, all of the things I've told you and many more, those are all, every one of them, the results of how decisions are made inside the productive units of our economy, the factories, the stores, and the offices, by a tiny group of people who are not accountable to the people they employ. The people they employ are the majority. The people who are not accountable are the minority. That's why it's not democracy. It's the antithesis. Well, then the solution jumps right out at you. Democratize the enterprise. Make the decisions something that is done one person, one vote. Everybody who works in an enterprise has an equal say in deciding what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the profits that they all helped to produce. What a wonderful, interesting idea. Democracy in the workplace. Just think of a society in which you have not just democracy where you live, but democracy where you work. If it was good for the one, maybe it's good for the other. Maybe getting rid of the kings who told us what to do where we live is like getting rid of the board of directors who tells us what to do where we work. Because you know, it kind of matters. Being at work is what you do most of the adult life you have, is going to work. If democracy is a value that means something to you, it should have been instituted long ago where you work, because that's where you spend most of your time. Instead, you accept what? To live in a society you like to call democratic, even though the place where you spend most of your time is the antithesis of that, your workplace. The alternative is very old. Democratizing the workplace is not a new idea. Not a, it's ancient. Nowadays, it's called worker co-ops. So as good a name as any. What does it mean? A group of people getting together and making a, a decision. We're going to produce something. A software program, hamburgers, haircuts, it doesn't matter. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to be a collective. We're going together to decide how to produce, where to produce, when to produce, all of that. And we're going to debate it, and then we're going to make a decision by majority vote. That's what we're going to do. We're going to run it that way. Human beings have been trying to do that for a long time. What you may not know is that human beings have done it often. You may not know that human beings are doing it right now, all over the place, including in the United States. And one of the reasons it's a perennial effort is because the systems that have existed, slavery, feudalism, capitalism, provoke people to be critical 
and to find their way sooner or later to this alternative. I'll give you just two examples as I bring this to a close. The most famous example is a, is a corporation in Spain. Some of you may have heard about it. It's called the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation. Here's the story of this company. In 1956, Spain, which is where this company exists and is based, Spain was a very poor country. It had gone through a horrific civil war, and then there was World War II. Spain was a poor country to begin with, and it was devastated by the civil war, and then by World War II. So in 1956, it was a very poor country. And in the Basque region, that's the northern part of Spain, uh, on the southern side of the Pyrenees Mountains that separate Spain from France, the Basque people, who are their own kind of ethnicity, if you like, they have their own language and culture, um, very, very poor. They're Roman Catholic, as are most people in Spain, and they had a local priest. And he made a famous joke one day at church. He said, if we wait, to have jobs for some capitalist or some employer to come here, we'll all die of old age. So what I suggest, he said, is that we become our own employer. In other words, set up a worker co-op, which he did. Six workers and a priest. Fast forward to today. Mondragon Corporation, Mondragon Cooperative Corporation, is the seventh largest corporation in Spain. It has 100,000 workers. It is the biggest success story of the Spanish economy in the last half century. It is a collection of 150 to 200, depending on how you count, worker co-ops. In every one of its businesses, it's a conglomerate, services, manufacturing, and so on. In every one of its businesses, the workers collectively decide all of these issues. What to produce, how to produce, where to produce stunningly successful, outcompeted dozens of capitalist enterprises who could not make it work in competition with them. They're so successful now that they have their own university, the Mondragon University, which will teach courses to anybody who's interested in how to organize a co-op, how to finance a co-op, how to manage a co-op, how to deal with the personnel problems of co-ops, etc. It's a well-developed program. Very successful. Two interesting rules that might excite you. Rule number one, the workers together hire and fire and evaluate the managers. I know I have to let that sink in. In other words, it's the opposite of what you have. The workers decide whether the managers were successful, and if they weren't, they're gone. They also have another rule. The highest paid person cannot get more than eight times the income of the lowest paid person. That's how they solved the problem of inequality. Just gone. Not an issue. There is some inequality. Eight to one is still a hefty ratio. But I assume you know that the ratio of corporate CEOs to low-paid workers in American corporations is around 350 to one, which is why we have the inequality that we have. And there are many more examples. A worker co-op would solve its problems in a different way, be a different economic system. Here's an interesting thing. Imagine a corporation confronted with the notion, gee, you know, why are you hiring Americans who you have to pay a large amount of money to? Doesn't that sound like a really good idea? But one of the things that I think about a lot is what about greed? What about 
luxuries. And that's what I think of as the home dilemma. If I have a corporation that is owned and operated by the employees, can we all grow wealthy together? Are we all able to have 401ks? Can we all have nice Louis Vuitton trunks? Can we have multiple homes? Is that possible? Let's look at the three titans, Amazon, Alphabet, and Facebook. In 2016, Facebook had 17,046 employees. Their Q4 2016 net income was $3.569 billion. That's $3,569,000. This means at its basic level, they had $3.56 billion in profit, or $3.57 billion in profit. Each employee that quarter could have got a bonus of $208,846 if they paid out the profit. Now, I know there are probably some people that are economists that possibly listen to this, maybe some people that have finance degrees, and the profit is kind of a different concept. It's not necessarily all cash, but um, let's assume that it is. Let's assume that we had that much money minus that many expenses that was all cash-based, and the remainder was 208840 I'm sorry, the remainder was $3.57 billion. Each person, if they voted it, could have given themselves a bonus, including Mark Zuckerberg, of $208,846. Let's take a look at Amazon. In Q3 2017, so just last year, Amazon had 542,000 employees. Its operating profit was $726 million. So let's think about it. They had a revenue in the billions of dollars, but they only netted $726 million. They would have only been able to pay their employees a bonus of $1,339. Not really a very profitable company for Jeff Bezos being worth $110 billion, but I guess he deserves it. He thought to sell books on the internet. Um, however, net worth isn't in cash, but let's say he liquidated $50 billion. He could give all of his employees, including himself, $92,250. However, if he did that, he would only be worth $60 billion. And I guess times are tough with Trump in the White House. The third Titan, Google, or Alphabet, as their parent company is called now, they have 72,000, or they had 72,053 employees in Q3 of 2017. That same quarter, they had a net income of $6.73 billion. If they split that profit between all the employees, they would all get about $93,431. Now, mind you, this is for one quarter at those companies. But if you think about this and we look at all of the corporations and companies in the world, they're not all going to be as profitable as these companies. I mean, these are some of the biggest companies in the world. They're the Titans. They're the new Rockefeller, Chase, and Carnegie. But it doesn't seem that if the profits were equally distributed to everyone, that they would all be able to get ridiculously wealthy, especially if they worked at Amazon, which has a terrible profit margin. 
which means, mind you, that I haven't conducted any mathematical computations whatsoever on this. This is just me thinking and talking. Uh, I'm just a decent at using my old brain, maybe not even decent at using it, but it's always going. Wealth doesn't seem to really be acquired from this division of profit. Now, this division of profit can make people much happier at work. They have a say in what happens with that profit. They don't necessarily have to give that to everybody in the company. They don't have to divide that up. They can decide to do something else with it. But I think that wealth is more acquired in our society, possibly through investing and speculation. Every successful investor must begin by understanding the difference between saving, investing, and speculating. If you get those confused, you run the risk of losing a lot of money. Let's start with saving. Saving can be defined as the process of setting money aside in order to make a purchase a short time in the future, typically under three years. The most important element when it comes to saving is the safety of your money. You don't want the value of your savings to fluctuate because you'll need all of it to make your purchase. There are several options available to help you save money – savings accounts, money market accounts, and certificates of deposit, for example. Unfortunately, as a trade-off for protecting your money, saving typically pays interest at a rate that is just a bit higher than inflation. If you want to earn more than that, you'll have to look to investing. Unlike saving, investing is a long-term process. It often involves committing a portion of your money to owning a share of a business, with the expectation that you'll receive a higher return than inflation. The most important factor in investing is the growth of your money, and there are many ways to invest, with stocks, bonds, and real estate being the most popular. However, once again, there's a trade-off. While investing typically offers better returns than saving, it also carries more risk, as the value of your investment bounces up and down, at least when looked at in the short term. To be a successful investor, you must invest your money for at least three years. That's because, over longer periods, the value of your money will appreciate enough so that even if the value of your investment falls over a short period of time, it will still be higher at the end of the period than it would have been if your money had been sitting in a savings account. But what if you need to grow your money quickly? That's where speculating comes in. Speculating involves putting your money at risk with the hope that you will earn a high return in a short period of time. Day trading is a good example of speculating where stock trades are opened and closed in a period of minutes or hours. Speculators can win big, but they can also lose everything. So to sum up, save to protect your money, invest to grow your money, speculate to gamble your money. For all the employees to get wealthy, not only do they have to own a piece of the pie, but if a large group of investors and speculators can buy and sell some shares that the employees own and own more of, who are the decision makers, the employees, they'll be able to make the most money. How would this work? Well, first, in public corporations, there is common stock that usually equates to one vote per share of stock. So if I own a million shares of the stock, I have a million votes. This makes sense that the person who invests more money has more right to say of the company. At least that's where the concept came up or how I believe that it came up. Even if this 
person is a complete buffoon if they have enough money to have the most shares of stock they have the most votes but it makes sense how people may have come to this conclusion when we think about the fact that the person that provides the most money should have the most say in what the company does nonetheless we can come up with a better better situation we can come up with a better concept for the corporation one life one vote that takes care of our decision making problem if you work for the company you have a vote on the board of directors you have a vote or the vote for the board of directors if that's how we decide to do this but let's say we did you would have a vote every year to say who's on the board of directors as the employee and you would also be able to vote on how the profit is distributed now the profit we need to have a system of shares that are in place that are either earned through tenure or work. We will call these common A shares. A rating system can be created that allots a certain amount of shares to each individual throughout their career. So let's say we have a million shares outstanding. Fred, who has been with the company for 10 years, he's a web designer, he's a manager, he does really, really well. Over the course of his career, he has accumulated 30,000 shares. So 30,000 divided by 1 million would be 3% of ownership in the company. If we had 1 million in profit in quarter one, and the company decided to pay out 30% to the employees, then we would have to pay out $300,000. Fred would get a $9,000 portion of the profits being paid out. How nice would that be to share in profits? Again, what this does is decrease inequality in the corporation and in the community. But again, this is about getting people the best life possible. This is where a second class of stock can come into play. If the company sells public stock with no voting rights, it allows all the capitalists to get some money off of your hard work, yes, but that's okay. They're giving money to buy the stocks. If our They're giving us money to purchase the stock so we get more money for the company. If our employees also have access to this stock for free, they gain off of the investing end of the speculation of the capitalists as long as that stock price goes up. So if the stock is selling for $20 a piece and Fred gets, say, 30,000 shares of this type of stock, then Fred is now worth $600,000 right away based off of the investing and speculation of others. Let the capitalists speculate and invest. Of course, they too will get rich, but again, they have no say in the board and they have no say in the profits. This is a great starting point for October Revolution, but of course, there's a lot of problems with this. Uh, one of the problems is that uh, you can lose wealth over time, especially when speculation comes into play, but you can also amass wealth. There's also the problem of do you share some of the profits with the other uh, shareholders. Do they actually own in the company? So that's some of the stuff that's going to have to be worked out with the bylaws. But right now, that's my responsibility to create those bylaws to get it into place so we can create a board of directors so that we can continue to move forward with this company. But if there's no revenue, the money can't move forward. So it's probably about time that I get my ass into gear and figure out how and explain how we're actually going to make revenue with this company. Check you later. can't get enough age of radio podcast make sure you check out jv impacts every single morning he comes to you with motivation health and life tips and also check out bones on sports coming at you every other monday 
Jimmy Bones comes to you from the crypt, and he's going to be talking to you about anything he thinks is relevant in the sports world. Age of Jeremy is recorded in Furry's room. Yes, she is a hamster. This episode was recorded and mastered using Steinberg's Cubase. It was recorded with blue microphones and Mackie speakers. We want to thank our hosting company, Lipson and Microsoft Office, for making it possible to collaborate efficiently and effectively across virtual channels. The intro song was Midwestern States by the Mezzingers off their newest album, After the Party. The closing song is Think Again by Minor Threat. Don't forget, you make the difference, you shape the universe. Check you later.